All right. Thank you, ladies. Hey, good morning. My name is Brandon. If I have not had the chance to meet you, uh, I serve as the lead pastor here at Midtown. It's a great privilege uh, to be back. Before we get to um, our teaching time and reading scripture, uh, I just want to say thank you. So for the last month, I've been on month one of a three-month, uh, what we call sabbatical, what the scriptures refer to as sabbatical, which is just a time to kind of step away from normal uh, vocational responsibilities. As you know, in any job, uh, there are uh, what you might call occupational hazards, and uh, as a pastor, as one who uh, my life's calling is to, to serve and to kind of give out, uh, it's great to be able to step away and engage in what author, uh, one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, calls a creative absence, which is kind of stepping away uh, and giving absence as a gift to allow uh, others to kind of step up and lead and flourish, as well as to, uh, to rest my own heart and make sure that I'm, I'm walking with the Lord. We know we see stories of pastors burning out and, and, and committing, you know, moral failures, and um, by God's grace, we don't want that to be our story as a church, and so uh, I'm super thankful. I know that many of you are in businesses or in careers, vocations where that's not afforded to you. I think about 20% of businesses, uh, last time I checked, have some kind of sabbatical policy, whether it's a month or two months or six months, and so um, we're thankful. It's a good month for us just to step away, to uh, wake up every morning and not have the pressure of, like, I have all of these goals and objectives and responsibilities and, and emails to respond to. Uh, it was great to wake up and say, literally, what are we going to do today? And so to wake up each morning, spend 45 minutes to an hour with the Lord, hearing from Him, reading His Word, without having to think about preaching it or teaching it to somebody else other than my children and my, my wife, uh, and then just to travel, went to Florida with some friends, uh, went to uh, Kansas and saw some friends. You know, people are like, what is in Kansas? Friends. And that's it. Uh, that's literally it. You hit Kansas City and it's like going off the edge of, uh, over the edge of a cliff. Uh, but we had a great time and then this last week we were able to rest. And so um, I think one of the things that uh, we, we were reminded of uh, is just really the importance of waiting on God. Everything feels so urgent when you're in the grind and your head's down. And uh, I know for me, that triggers a lot of anxiety and the need to kind of achieve and, and perform and try to, try to be and appear successful, to step away and to kind of let those fears kind of melt away and to really see what's truly important, what truly matters, and then to think about re-entering this week and to rebuild our life kind of around those things that are really important, that gift of kind of what, what the Bible calls discernment is just is a huge fruit of this time. And so I'm thankful. Uh, I know that... Um, it was a burden on our staff and our elders, and so I'm super thankful for so many of you stepped up and allowed us to have that space, and uh, I just want to say thank you, and I'm excited about being back here. My family will be here at the 11 o'clock, and so we're excited about re-engaging as we head back into the fall and uh, all that God has for us this year. So uh, with that said, we are going to be in Exodus. We've been doing a series on the book of Exodus off and on for the past uh, six months or so, and uh, this is a long text, so we're in Exodus 15, uh, Exodus 15, the end of 15, starting in verse 22. Now, I, I believe in you. Like I've, you're, This is the 9 o'clock service. You guys can handle a long reading, right? Can we handle it? So we're going to have a long scripture reading. I just want to encourage you. There's a lot of like weird names, and I may mess some of them up uh, in places, uh, and it's a long text, but I think it's really important for us, if we're going to teach on this this morning, to, to hear all of this narrative, and so we're going to re be reading about 50 verses, and so I want to encourage you, open up your Bible, follow along on your device, or there should be a Bible, blue and white one around, you can use that this morning as your own if you don't have one. We're going to be in Exodus 15, 22, uh, reading through chapter 17, verse 7. So hear the word of the Lord, and let's receive this as uh, the Holy Spirit's words for us this morning. 
Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it each, of you, each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. 
Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See. The Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore in the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place, let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. When I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the reading of the word of the Lord. All right, just breathe. Just pause. That's a lot of reading, a lot to take in. I want to encourage you, as we do every week of Scripture, to, to try to... Imagine yourself in this situation. This is a real historical event. The people of Israel have now been freed from generations of slavery, right? Multi-generational poverty and oppression. They've been liberated now. And that's uh, the first 
14 chapters of Exodus guide us through the journey of their liberation from oppression. Chapter 15 begins a transition, and so we saw uh, Joel did such a great job last week. Um, We see Israel celebrating, right, partying, singing songs of deliverance, right? There's this euphoria that's kind of captured the imagination of of people, and when we get joyful, we, we, we should be singing. And that's what happens, uh, we, we kind of left them there last week singing, posting like Insta stories, hashtagging God's victory over this oppressive Egyptian regime. And so just imagine how that must have felt to be standing uh, on the other side of the Red Sea, on the other side of oppression, all of these longings that you and your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents have had for generations. Now, all of a sudden, They begin to get a taste of what it's like to be free. They look back on the beach and they see the bodies floating to shore of the Egyptians that have drowned. And they say, the Lord is a warrior. Now what's interesting here is that God sends them from that euphoric partying uh, into the wilderness. And just three days later, we pick up the narrative here in chapter the end of chapter 15, they go from singing to cynicism, to grumbling, to quarreling, right? Three days without water will do that to you. I don't know if you've ever gone a day without water or half a day without water. When you get thirsty, when you get hungry, you get hangry. Right? It's like those Snickers commercials. Like just, you get frustrated. And so they are feeling the effects physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. I don't know if you can identify, can anyone here identify with that? Like uh, three days, you know, you have this amazing experience with God, you see God deliver you, rescue you, and three days later, three minutes later, three months later, three years later, all of a sudden you feel like you're in a wilderness, right? And all you feel like doing is grumbling, or maybe you just wake up and you're just like, I don't know why, I just feel frustrated. And I don't know if you can relate, it's kind of like, um, in some ways, like being a parent, um, I spent a lot of time with my kids. I love my kids. I have four kids, and um, I spent a lot of time with them this month, and I was just reminded, like, there's some days as a parent where you look at your kids, and you're like, man, um, I see amazing growth and maturity in them, and I'm thankful for them, and I'm just praising them and thanking God for, like, just the maturity and the growth and what I'm seeing in their lives, and then, like, three minutes later, I'm like, God, why have you put me in the wilderness? What are you doing? Like, I mean, you, there's just this despair because I look at them and they're, they're, they're fighting or they're not obeying or whatever, and it's, that's, that's what's happening here. There's just, it's, it's amazing how fast the weather can change. We go from euphoric singing to cynical grumbling. That word grumbling uh, throughout the text here, it's probably the most frequent word used. I, I counted at least 11 times that grumbling's mentioned in this passage. It's just a low-grade murmur. Right, just the low-grade murmur of cynicism that can capture our hearts and roll in like a storm, fill our minds and our hearts with darkness. So let's talk about why. Why would God lead them into the wilderness? Why, why does God do this at this moment? Like, why is God like a wet blanket? It's like all of this celebrating, dance party, singing, and then God just says, all right, time to go to the wilderness. Like, why does God lead them into the wilderness. That's what I want to talk about today. Why does God lead them into the wilderness? What is God doing in our wilderness seasons? You may feel like you're in a wilderness right now. You're not alone. We see, um, let's talk about wilderness for a second. Um, We see throughout the Bible that uh, life for the people of God is a wilderness. 
right? One of the things that's interesting here is that the people get mad at Moses and they say, you've led us into the wilderness. But they've actually got it wrong. It's God who leads them to, through the wilderness, right? God is the one who is in the cloud. He's in the fire leading them, right? We read that later in the book of Exodus, chapter, uh, chapters 39 and 40, that, that God is the one, his presence is literally going before them. So we learn that God is the one who leads his people into the wilderness. Now think about this. They, they leave this celebration. They look out and all they see is desert, right? Desert and wilderness are synonymous in the Bible. All they see is uninhabitable wasteland. And for a generation, they're going to spend the rest of their lives wandering in the wilderness. Think about that. Like you think your life, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, all they had to look forward to in the future was wilderness. But that's actually a theme that we see throughout the Bible, that God leads his people into the wilderness. I mean, think about, remember the story of Moses. Moses goes to the wilderness for 40 years. The people of Israel hang out in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, one of the first things that the Holy Spirit leads him to do in his ministry in the New Testament, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, is it says the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness to be tested. The book of Hebrews goes on to extrapolate and actually draws on this passage, quoting Psalm 95 in chapter 3, which is a quote of the Exodus, and he actually compares our journey as Christians in this world to a wilderness. He says, don't harden your heart in the midst of the ups and downs of life. Do not allow your heart to grow hard and rebellious as they did in the wilderness. The implication is that we all as Christians live in a wilderness. Now, it's important to know that God doesn't always cause our wildernesses. In this case, he led them out. He caused this one, but sometimes God simply uses the wilderness moments in our lives. But here's the thing. God is always present in our wildernesses, and he's always powerful in our wilderness seasons. Now, why would God do this for 40 years? I mean, that's a long time. And think about 40 years. 40 years from now, I'll be 79. That is a long time. Some of you like, still have like 20 years until you get to, to 40 years. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, um, that healing is both a moment and a journey. It's a moment. God delivers them. He rescues them. He brings them out of the promised land. That happens in a moment. God acts decisively in a moment. But the journey to freedom and healing is a journey. It takes a lifetime. It's a process. Remember, because the exodus is not just geographical. It's not God taking people from one geographical place to another only. The exodus is relational, and it's also spiritual. Right? God is not just getting his people out of Egypt, he is getting Egypt out of his people, and that takes a long time. So this wilderness theme in the Bible becomes, for the writers of the Bible, a metaphor. Right? It was a historical event, but becomes a metaphor that saturates their imagination and their teaching. They draw on this as a paradigm for the Christian life, for salvation, for the journey. In Scripture, wilderness or the desert is a struggle. It's a struggle to move from one home to another. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's a struggle from darkness to light, from immaturity to maturity, from being lost to being at home. 
It, it's, it's a struggle to move from one season of life even to another, right? It can become a metaphor for developmentally what's happening. You see Israel kind of here kind of in their adolescence or in their, uh, their young adulthood. We're leaving one home and seeking to establish another. It's a struggle to move from one season of discipleship to another, from fundamental, basic discipleship to more mature discipleship, from the struggle to get our lives together, you could say, to the struggle to give our lives away. All of these things are happening in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place where everything that we hope for, everything that we trust in for meaning, for connection, for safety and security. Again, think about in their case, even though Egypt, as bad as it was, it was oppressive, but it was predictable. It was predictably oppressive, right? There was a measure of they woke up and they at least got their bread. Their water was provided to them on a schedule, not a harsh and abusive one, but nonetheless, it provided some sense of security for them. The wilderness is a place where all of that evaporates. All of that dries up. All of that goes away. And they're forced to learn a new way of thinking, a new way of relating, a new way of being in the world as God's children, learning to, to see God as their father and them as, their, as his children. It's a time where you learn what got you here won't take you to the future that God has for you. Like all the strategies and all the ways that we kind of learn to survive and cope and live in a broken world, all of those things that get you to this moment are not the things that are going to get you down the road 10 or 15 or 20 years. That's one of the ways you know you're in a wilderness moment is the things that have worked for you in the past no longer work. You continue to hit the levers, right? Like you're newly married, you're a new parent, right? You're, you're just out of college and all these levers that you used to hit that, that, that provided you the pellets, you know, so to speak, like in a previous season of life, now it's, you're jamming the button and nothing's coming out. You feel alone. You feel lost. You feel disoriented. That's wilderness. You know what I'm talking about? You ever had a wilderness season? If not, welcome to the human race. Like, welcome to your 20s. Like, welcome to your 30s, right? This is a part of life. So I want to encourage you, if you find yourself in a wilderness season, whether that's emotional, an emotional wilderness, a spiritual wilderness, a relational wilderness, don't resist it. And don't listen to anybody that wants to push you through it too quickly. Because there will be people that will say, oh, just, just move on. Don't worry about the past. You know, close your eyes, click your heels. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. But just, just imagine that it's not there. No, it's real. It is a real thing. Receive it as a gift from your father. Receive the wilderness as a gift from your father. What feels like death in God's purposes is often the beginning of new life, new way of being, new way of thinking. The wilderness is the primary place where God meets his people. And it is the primary place where God matures his people. It's where people fall apart and God puts them back together. Right? It's where our lives fall apart and it's in that moment what some psychologists might call positive disintegration. Right? In that moment when your life's falling apart, that God is actually in the process of rebuilding you into the person that he wants you to be. And it takes going through a wilderness, going through adversity to get us to that place. But notice what's on the other side. What God's doing in the midst of the wilderness is something much greater. It's not just inflicting pain. He's not killing us. 
not taking us out into the desert, as they keep saying, to die. When we're in the wilderness, we tend to exaggerate. We're emotional. Here's what he's doing. Ronald Rollheiser, one of my, uh, a, an author, he's written a book called Sacred Fire. He says this, The desert as we know is the place we're stripped of all that normally nourishes and supports us. We are exposed to chaos, raw fear, and demons of every kind. In the desert, we are exposed body and soul, made vulnerable to be overwhelmed by chaos and temptations of every kind. But precisely because we are so stripped of everything we normally rely on, this is also a privilege moment for grace. Why? Because all the defense mechanisms, support systems, and distractions that we normally surround ourselves with so as to keep chaos and fear at bay work at the same time to keep much of God's grace at bay. What we, used to bu- what, what we use to buoy us up wards off both chaos and grace, demons and the divine alike. Conversely, when we are helpless, we're open. That is why the desert is, bo- is both the place of chaos and the place of God's closeness. That's a radically different way to think about wilderness. But it's what the Bible teaches. We see that God leads his people into the wilderness, not to kill them, but to heal them, right? That's the whole point of this first section in, in, in verses 22 to 27. Freedom is only half the story of the Exodus, right? It's okay to get free, but free to what? Like, if, if, if we don't experience more than freedom, we won't be able to handle the freedom that we have. So freedom's only half the story in the book of Exodus. They didn't just need to be liberated. They needed to be healed. They needed to be And what we see here in Exodus chapter uh, 15, the end here, is essentially a reenactment of the first plague, right? That word disease is the same word that's used for plague in the first half of the book. When God says, I'm not going to bring these diseases on you, he's talking about the plagues. I'm going to have a different kind of relationship with you than I had with the Pharaoh and with the Egyptians. Remember the, the water in the first plague was undrinkable. Moses touches the water with the staff, it becomes undrinkable. He touches the water with the staff, it becomes drinkable. Again, that's exactly what happens here. The people, after wandering for three days, they find uh, just this oasis of water. They go and they run, I'm sure, and they splash them on their face. And what do they find? It's, it's bitter. Ugh. Disappointment. They splash it in their face, it's undrinkable. Moses touches it with log, a tree, and it becomes sweet. It becomes drinkable again. And God says this, which again, whenever you hear God say, I am throughout the book of Exodus, you should pay attention because the book of Exodus is showing us things about the character of God. Many of these for the very first time in scripture. And so down in verse 26, God says, if you listen to my voice, if you follow my commands, if you will depend on me and trust in me, essentially, I will put none of the plagues, the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Why? Because that's the kind of father that I am. I am the Lord, your healer. I'm not the one who kills you. I'm the one who brings life. I'm the one who raises from the dead. I'm the one who heals. First time in the Bible that God has revealed himself is healer. First time. They're going to know for the first time that God is a father, and that he's the kind of father who heals, not abuses. This word healer means wholeness. It means to repair, to mend, to rebuild. 
It's captured in this idea here in the passage, metaphorically, symbolically, from bitter to sweet. That's what it means to be healed by God. It's to move from a place of bitterness to a place of sweetness, from a place of bitterness to one of joy. That's the journey that we're on as the people of God. Our lives in Egypt are marked by bitterness, sadness, sorrow, anxiety, frustration. God says, I'm going to bring you into a place of wholeness, from a place of plagues to a place of healing. And, and here's the thing. What do, they need to be, what do they need to be healed? I would argue that it's not just their wounds that need to be healed. The primary thing that God is doing in the wilderness is actually healing their image of God. That's what they needed to be healed, was not just their wounds from the past, but something deeper than their wounds, which is true for all of us, there's always something underneath our wounds that needs to be healed. It's our image of God, because we're asking God questions in the midst of our pain. And that's the thing that they are brought to discover, is not only uh, are they broken in terms of the abuse that they've uh, experienced and the sin they're, gonna, uh, they're going to experience here shortly, but um, there's some bitterness that needs to be healed towards God, right? As they get out into the wilderness, all of the chaos all of the uncertainty, the lack of control of the wilderness. That's what the wilderness does. It deconstructs. It breaks down. It's a chaos factor, right? God doesn't say, here's the plan. We're going to go here, then we're going to take 50 paces here, and then we're going to stop here. God gives them no itinerary, no Google Maps, right? Like, no, like, this is the direction we're going. He just says, go into the wilderness. Trust me. Now, I don't know about you. I know some of you are very trusting people, but, like, when you don't have a plan, how do you feel, right? You start to feel anxious because we like to be in control, right? Like our whole society in some ways is built around mastering and control and competency and having a plan. God says, not going to give you a plan. And that triggers, all of that chaos triggers the Israelites, what you could call their life narrative. The life narrative they'd walked in for 400 years of mistrust and anxiety, and abuse, and addiction, and bitterness. And they begin to grumble, the Bible says, 11 times. But who do they grumble against? Moses. Moses. They grumble, they complain, they quarrel. In chapter 17, the word quarrel means to, it's almost like a lawsuit. They sue Moses, essentially. You've done this to us. Now, what's interesting here is that Moses doesn't allow them to project, right? Like the psychologists would call this transference or projection, right? The wounds from our past, we want to project on people closest to us, what's called transference. And, and often um, Moses will say several times throughout this passage, hey, don't blame me. Your problem's actually with God. It's not with me. I, I think at least three times he says, hey, who am I? I didn't do this to you. Your problem's with God. Now, just as a side note, if you're a leader of any sort, but particularly in the church, people will try to do this to you. They'll triangulate you into their problems. They will relive the trauma and abuse and sin and suffering of their past, and they will often try to entangle you, right? They'll say, this is all your fault. You're an MC leader. This MC stinks. You're a terrible leader. We're not doing X, Y, and Z. You're not meeting my needs. I'm going to another church. I'm going to another missional community, right? Like, your kid's can do this. Adult children can do this, right? Uh, teenagers, like, they, they traffic in this. They're really good at this, right? Like, this is all your fault. Terrible parent. So you, you know, whatever. Um, your spouse can do this. They're mad and they're frustrated. 
Now, again, you probably have given them some reasons to be frustrated, no doubt. But oftentimes their bigger issue is not with you, it's actually with their life. It's with God. Because when we internalize a narrative of of anxiety and abuse and mistrust, what can oftentimes happen is it can make us bitter, not just towards the people around us, but towards God. And I love that Moses is such a differentiated leader that he refuses to let them project on him, and he says, no, you've got to take it up with God. Sometimes we need to do that. We need to look people in the face and say, hey, I think your problem's not with me. It's actually with God. I think we need to look inside our own hearts and even ask ourselves the question, why am I frustrated? Why is there a pattern of frustration and anxiety that seems to permeate my life? And it's like no matter where I go, what relationship I'm in, what job I have, it's always somebody else's fault. Like, what's going on inside of that? Could it be that it's not everyone around me necessarily oppressing me? Could it be that it's something in my own heart that's bitter towards God? God, where were you when this abuse happened? Why did you let this go on for 400 years? What took you so long? Apparently, Moses knew something about the condition of their hearts that he was drawing out. And so God draws those things out through the wilderness. Because they, they knew the history, right, of God and his promises. They knew it intellectually. But they needed to know God as their healer experientially. Like they knew that God had done what he'd done with the patriarchs. They knew about Joseph. They heard the stories. But it had been 400 years, and they not experienced any of it for themselves. And what, what we see here is the kindness of God over and over and over again. So for everybody who wants to say God is this mean, vindictive, bloodthirsty tyrant, what we see over and over again is God is healing their image of himself, and every time they grumble, what does God say? Hey, come here. Come gather. Literally, the word is come and gather. It's the same word that will be used throughout the book of Exodus to talk about worship. Hey, come gather near. I'm going to show you my kindness, not my punishment. The Lord disciplines them. He does not punish them throughout the wilderness. Every time they grumble, he responds with kindness and mercy and grace. Now contrast that with their other father figure, Pharaoh, who every time they grumbled, deprived them even more, abused them even more. God says, I'm not that kind of father, and I want you to experience me. I want you to have your image of me healed, because when our image of God is healed, then we begin to experience wholeness in our relationships with other people and our relationship with ourselves. As long as there's a breach in our relationship with God, in our image of God, we will always feel that underlying note of bitterness and cynicism and anxiety. So how does God heal his people in the wilderness? Here quickly. How does he heal his people in the wilderness? It's through what he calls testing. Testing. So there are these tests. You see it in chapter 15, verse 25. God says, I'm going to test them. Chapter 16, verse 4, I'm going to test them. The test in chapter 16 was bread, right? He, he, he invites them to test him. Now, testing in the Bible is not like testing that we experience. We often think of testing um, and we think of like pass-fail tests. You think of a you know, your board exams, you think of like a personality test. That's not testing here in the Bible. This is not pass-fail, right? Testing is about teaching and about training in the wilderness. Remember, in Egypt, they had a way of life where they worked anxiously for their bread and their water and their basic needs. 
and they were punished if they didn't hit their quota. So there was a lot of anxiety and a need to prove themselves. They built storehouses to unjustly hoard, we see in chapter 1, their resources. And God's saying, that's no longer going to do. If you want to be my children, you want to receive from me and walk with me, you're going to le- have to learn how to, how to trust me. You're going to have to learn how to rest, which is the whole thing in the Sabbath. We talked about that back in January. You're going to have to learn a way to be just in the way that you distribute resources, which is why everyone got basically the same amount of food. But we know that they ultimately failed the test of bread, right? God says, do it this way and do it this way, and at every point, they fail. But notice God doesn't abandon them in the midst of their failure. Matter of fact, it gets to the point in chapter 17 where it says, they test God. Is God among us or not? That's sinful, right? They're testing God saying, God, you prove yourself to us. God is testing them, and they flip the script, and they put God in the dock. So they fail at every point. They grumble and they quarrel when they don't get what they want, and then they're greedy and they hoard when they actually do get what they want. And that's, that's what God is doing through testing is he's exposing all of these realities, and he's inviting them to bring them before him in honesty and vulnerability so that he can teach them what it means to trust him. So last two things here. What is God teaching us? What can we all learn from these wilderness tests? Again, they're not tests of pass-fail. They're not the test of a professor. They're the test of a father. Fathers test differently than professors and boards. Fathers test for our benefit. Two things that God teaches us through our wilderness tests. The first is awareness. Awareness. Moses, uh, sometime later, as he's about to die, the book of Deuteronomy, which helps us explain a lot of Exodus and learn a lot about Exodus. Before he dies, he's speaking to the people a final word. Deuteronomy chapter 8, reflecting on the, what, what's happening in the wilderness. is able with a, a vantage point and a perspective to say this. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. In other words, whether you would trust his words over your own thoughts and feelings. He says, I'm testing you to humble you so that you might know what's in your heart. God already knows what's in our heart. He doesn't need to know what's in our heart. God knows it's so that we No, and what Moses is saying is we don't know what's going on in our hearts. That's what he's saying. You don't know, so I'm going to test you so you can see it for yourself because human beings are amazing at self-deception, self-delusion. We think we know and we don't know. That's why everybody else around you often walks on eggshells when it comes to things that like everybody else knows about you, but you don't know, and it's like, who's going to tell them? Who's going to be the one that holds up the mirror? I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And so we just kind of let people like self-destruct because nobody wants to have that conversation. We are delusional. We are out of touch with with what's really going on in our hearts. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. In the wilderness... The pain of the wilderness puts us in touch with the reality of the brokenness that still remains in our hearts, even after we know God as our Father. And the reason he does that is not just to say, okay, there it is, self-discovery, good job, you see your shadow, good job. 
No, he does it so that we'll bring it before him and allow him to heal it. God's not just saying here, you find this out and you be you and you do you. No, he's saying, find this out, discover this so that you can experience transformation. So you can bring it before God so that it can be healed, right? And nothing does that like a good test, right? The test is adversity, right? We may sing just like they did in chapter 15, and we can come in here and sing, and we can podcast, and we can tweet, and we can hashtag all we want about the goodness of God when times are good and we're experiencing triumph. But you allow a little bit of adversity into your life, and man, there is nothing like a test to puncture those superficial platitudes and draw out your true thoughts, your true feelings, your true desires, your real disappointments, and your real despair. That's what happens in the wilderness. And man, look how deep the addiction runs for them. I mean, they look back to Egypt and they're like, oh man, you remember how awesome Egypt was? All of that oppression, but at least we had meat. What? We're not even sure they had pots of meat. They could be totally making this up. But they look back and that's what we do when we're in addiction, right? We look to the past and we're like, you remember the good old days? You remember what it was like, you know, when I was in the midst of that? It was amazing, we're delusional. And God's trying to bring that stuff to the surface. Moses' song may have been on their tongues in triumph, but the memory of Egypt was still in their hearts in adversity. And we see that begin to come up, right? It's a, it is a journey, not a moment. And what God does in the wilderness is he uses ordinary struggles and circumstances and situations in our life. Bread and water, right? The most ordinary of ordinary things, basic human needs, Nothing wrong with wanting bread. Nothing wrong with wanting water, but it's how they wanted the bread. I want it on demand. I want it when I want it, how I want it on my terms. There was a lust for power and control here that's at work. Greed. We see all of these things in their hearts. And God uses these kinds of situations, basic, ordinary human situations and struggles, to push us right to the edge of our limitations. You know what I'm talking about? Like anybody ever experienced the edge of your limitations where all of your strength and all of your competency and all the things you thought you knew about life all of a sudden don't work anymore? That's the edge of your limitation. Right? Like the first couple years of marriage. Some of you are in the midst of that right now. All the things that work for you as a single guy don't work with your wife anymore. All the things that work for you, ladies, no longer works with your husbands all the strategies you used, all the ways that you could get away with, you know, men and women manipulating relationships. It's gone. The illusion breaks down. All of a sudden, you have a person that says no, and you've still got to live with them forever, <laughs> right? Like the early years of parenting, right? Disappointments in your singleness where you thought you were going to be here, and you're still here. The, your broken family system that continues to haunt you, that addiction that you can't kick, the job situation that you thought was going to work out like this, and it's actually going like this, and it's pushing you to the edge of your limitations, and it's like the wilderness, a place of fear and anxiety and loneliness, and just you're struggling to hold it together. Maybe you're in the dark night of the soul of depression, and you wake up, and every day just feels like a cloud, like those are the places where God meets us to show us what it looks like to be healed. And we oftentimes, just like the Israelites, see it come out in our interior life. We see it manifest itself as anger. We see it manifest itself as anxiety. 
We see it manifest itself as fantasizing and nostalgia. And so we can look at our lives and ask the question, where am I experiencing rage? That could be the very place where God is bringing me to new awareness where I've been saying I'm okay, but I'm not okay. Where where do you see anxiety in your life that's out of control? Not just a little bit of like normal anxiety that makes you human, but like out of control anxiety where you're just ruminating and thinking and you're trapped in your head and you literally can't function in a normal way. Or maybe you have fantasies about the past or about the future and you can't live grounded in the present. You just keep imagining what it would be like to go back or what it would be like to have somebody else's marriage or what it would be like to have somebody else's kids or what it would be like to have somebody else's job. Like these are the spaces where we become aware. And God wants us to see those things that are in our heart so we can name them and bring them and release them and allow them to heal us. Second thing that he teaches us is trust. Active trust. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to actively trust him. Right? And I say active because trust is not just a passive thing. Right? Like A lot of what happened up to this point in the narrative was passive. God rescues them. He delivers them. But notice here with the bread, he doesn't miraculously put the food in their stomach. He doesn't put the manna in their stomach. He puts it on the ground, and then what? They have to go out and get it. Isn't that amazing? Pastor Tim Keller says, uh, it just, it's kind of crazy when you look at this passage, how uh, the miracle, God didn't take the miracle all the way through. Why didn't he do that? Because he wanted to invite them to participate. Trust is not sitting back and just waiting for God to do something. Trust says, yeah, wait on God, and while you're doing that, go get the manna. Go gather it up. Go bring it back. Right? That's an active trust and that's why there's all of these rules and instructions about the sabbath and how much you can gather and when you can gather and rest and all this stuff Um, they had to do it god's way these rules are not arbitrary they're just god saying hey i need you to trust me you're not going to live life in my world on your own terms you must learn to trust god invites active trust in our process of healing right that's why he says walk in my ways right Back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, he goes on to say, I did this, I tested you so that you might learn to depend on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's words heal us. We must listen for them. We must discern God's words in a noisy world, right? Because there's a lot of words being said. There's a lot of truth that's being promised. But he says, I want you to listen for my word. It's my word that heals you. It's my word that strengthens you. God is inviting us into a daily, ongoing relationship with him. A daily, ongoing relationship. That's the whole thing with the manna. The manna goes away every day, and every day the Lord's mercies are new. Every day I have to ask the question, will I trust God today for manna? Will I trust God today to be enough for me? Or do I have to hoard or grumble to get my way, to try to manipulate God into doing what I think is best for my life? I mean, that's the rhythm and the cadence. It's learning to trust God to obey, to depend on God's words and God's mercies each day for new life. So, how do we get the bread? Like, what, what does that mean for us? We're not, we don't have manna. Never seen manna. Don't know what manna is. Nobody really knows what it is. Some kind of cream, some kind of flaky stuff. We don't know. That's not the point. The point is we have something better than manna, right? The New Testament says that we get bread, we get God's presence and his promises and his power, we get life 
not by looking back to Egypt, but by looking for the presence of God in our lives right now, right? Jesus in the wilderness goes out and he's tempted, and what does he do? He quotes scripture. We get bread by going to God's word, the Bible, and reading truth and reorienting lies with truth, replacing lies with truth, like Jesus did. He fights the devil, not in his own strength, but with the word of God, he's living. He literally quotes this passage from Deuteronomy and Exodus and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God's mouth. Scripture. He also says prayer. Right? We must pray these things from our head down into our hearts. I, I think that Jesus had this passage in his mind when he taught his disciples how to pray. What does he say? Give us our daily bread. Every day we need a relationship with God. We've got to go get fresh bread every single day. We need God's presence every single day. That's why it's important that we spend time with God in prayer every day because every day we get anxious. Every day we forget. Every day we get bitter and we need to go back to God and say, God, where are you at work in my life? God, I need you to be, as the psalm says, my rock. I need you to be my stronghold. I need you to be my bread. I need you to be my water. God, it is a dry and thirsty and parched desert out there. I need you to be water, bread, life. And that's why Jesus, picking up on this theme in John chapter 6 and 7, says, your, your father's got bread in the desert. But it wasn't from Moses. It was from their heavenly father. I am the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Whoever drinks my blood and eats my flesh, in other words, who feasts on me, will never thirst again, will never hunger again. It's an invitation to communion with God, to relationship with God, the presence and power of God, feasting on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, abandoning ourselves recklessly to Jesus, following Jesus, trusting him, depending on him. That's what he's saying. Come, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Out of me flow fountains of living water, and if you drink in my life, if you drink in my presence, you will never be hungry and thirsty again. That's how we get our bread. That's how we get life. We come to Jesus as the source of life, and we find that in the midst of the wilderness of life, transformed by God's presence, the worst wilderness is not a place of desolation and death, but a place of glory. while we celebrate communion here together each week. It's a reminder to us that God has invited us to feast, to dine with him, to come and to feast on his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, forgiving us of our sins and giving us life, right? Like this is not a small thing. This is not just a symbol. It's not just a picture. This is an opportunity to receive grace, to receive fresh power to receive the presence of God again in our lives by faith, saying, God, I'm trusting you. I'm depending on you. I'm coming to get manna. I'm coming to watch you strike the rock and do the impossible, the supernatural.